0: Hello and welcome to our next episode of the Work Healthy podcast which is actually been listened to all over the globe and thank you so much for that and joining us on our mission to make work healthy. Today we're joined by Debbie Bullock who's head of wellbeing at Aviva. To her colleagues they simply call her the conscience of the business and definitely she has a real passion for workforce health. We talk about reframing mental health as mental fitness the power of advocates, the importance of lived experience and why she makes sure to leave loudly most days. But first I asked her how she's made workforce health a strategic priority at Aviva.
1: So one of the core things to do is understand that actually if you want your people to perform well they need to be well. and um, It's really crucial um, if you want to transfer performance performance that they're at their best to support your customers or to do um, the certain role of being allocated so it's it needs to be a business strategic priority, especially in a service industry like um, the industry uh, Aviva are in because actually the interaction uh, our customers have is with our people and um, you don't get to take home a thing often when you buy insurance you get a piece of paper or an email now um, and as a result you don't have that kind of um purchase so being a service industry our people are crucial to that um and they will perform at their best and serve our customers at their best if they themselves are well if they work in an environment that is supportive where they've got a supportive leader where they've got a role with purpose um and clear accountabilities all of that underpins that performance and obviously not least if you can keep them well they're less likely to be absent so you'll have reduced absenteeism and reduced presenteeism where they're at work but not performing at their best because they're under the weather so that kind of um, strategic approach to well-being comes from the fact that um, your people are an important asset to your business um, and then being unwell Um, or leaving because you don't care for their well-being can create that kind of strategic challenge around attraction, uh, attracting and retaining talent.
0: Mm. And I I see, um, I don't know whether you call yourself this or whether or not uh, somebody else does, but the conscience of the business when it comes to uh, health and wellbeing.
1: <laughs> yeah yeah so um it was it was coined in a conversation rather than anyone particularly calling it out but it's kind of like reminding sometimes the business when when you can be particularly focused on um outcomes for customers for shareholders just reminding um senior stakeholders and leaders to think about the um the decisions that you might take and what impact that might have on colleague wellbeing it doesn't necessarily mean you'll change that decision. Um, but you just need to factor in that that thought process around what impact might it have on colleagues well being and whether that'll be a negative impact, a positive impact, and you know, just factoring it in but with a commercial lens. Mm.
0: Yeah. So so
1: that's that's the conscious role if you like, okay. sitting on the shoulder of someone going, have you thought about
0: okay so senior leaders are oftentimes people who you know maybe turn up to support hr by making a a pleasant speech or something like that how did you manage to turn the dial and get them convinced that this was a business imperative and that there's a, a more holistic view of what health and well-being actually is right today well
1: uh... I was quite lucky in the fact that a lot of our senior leaders were already switched on to this but then there's the financial impact of it so there is research out there that that um, showcases for example just from a mental wellbeing perspective not the broader wellbeing perspective that for every five, uh, for every pound you invest in in mental health activity it, there's a 5 pound return on that in terms of reduced abs- absenteeism reduced presenteeism so if if you're talking to someone who believes in numbers and wants to look at ROI, there is data out there to support it. Um, so that's that's one benefit. But just understanding that it's the right thing to do. Um, I was pushing on open doors um, at, at Aviva, um, but that's that's one of the key deliverables because if you don't look after the well-being of your staff, someone else will. And I also use the phrase, if you don't make time for wellness, you will have to make time for illness. Mm-hmm. And if you look at it from a from a societal point of view, having being at work should be net positive on your overall well-being. You know, having a purpose, something to get out of bed for on the morning, being able to earn an income, making connections and collaborations, you know, when, while working with people. All these have a positive impact on your overall well-being, especially your mental well-being. And you need to make sure that the work that's going on and how you treat those people at work doesn't take that away and make it net negative. So understanding that that impact that that has and the role we play on supporting those people um, to stay net positive from a wellbeing perspective just needs to be embedded in what we do as a sustainable business.
0: Hmm. And you uh, you talk a lot. I mean, I think you did your own personal dissertation on uh, mental health. And I know there's so many areas to go into here. Uh, psychological safety. And we'll come to the managers and the leaders in the organization in, in a moment. But that whole whole space of psychological safety, how do you make sure that Aviva is psychologically safe for people?
1: So, psychological safety is a bit of a buzzword, but actually, what it comes down to is trust and lack of fear. So, that kind of lack of fear—that if you bring something up, whether that's be a leader, or a colleague, or somewhere in the business—and that can be well-being related or work-related—that actually you're not going to be penalised as a result. Um, so, if you make a mistake at work and you're fearful about and you don't trust your leaders about what might happen if you share that you might hide that compound it and that that could actually make the situation worse whereas if you can be open about it deal with it sort the problem out and learn from it that kind of culture of openness and trust um, will build that and that applies from a wellbeing perspective. So being able to share how you actually feel or the situation that you've got around something and being able to share that openly without fear that it will impact your future career or, or anything like that. That's what creates that culture of psychological safety. And an element of that is also that fear and you know lack of fear and trust comes from a diversity and inclusion perspective, which is a key part of well-being in terms of underpinning it so knowing that um you know however you choose to identify from a gender perspective or what your sexuality is your your religion your culture any of that kind of characteristics that you might have you should be able to bring your whole self to work because if you can't your well-being is going to be um not in a great place because you're Mm -hmm. constantly having to hide who you are so having that trust and that lack of fear about sharing those parts of yourself so that you can bring your whole self to work that underpins the entire well-being and culture of an organization and and i've always said well-being is like a three-legged stool so um and if you've got all three legs it's really sustainable um does its job really well missing one or two legs and it becomes less effective and those three legs are personal accountability because you do need to take control of your own well-being the second leg is the benefits an organisation can offer because that helps you, um, when you do take control, helps you achieve the things that you want to achieve. But the third leg of the stool, and one that often doesn't get talking about enough, is the culture of an organisation
0: because mm. that
1: will underpin that kind of piece of um, being. And without that, you know, the stool's not, not going to be as effective or sustainable. How, uh,
0: how would you describe the culture of Aviva? Uh,
1: inclusive. Um, I think we... We have got a psychological safe culture. I don't think we're perfect everywhere. Um, I still think there are elements to go. And and culture often takes a long time to change. You can't do culture change from the top down. You can't say, right, this is going to be the new culture at Aviva. Full stop. You, yeah. ca- you can't do that from a top level down. There's an element of um, a requirement to come from the bottom up as well as the top down. Because your culture is what is what the actions that people take every day. It's not what we say the culture is. It's the small behaviours and incidents that happen um, across across the business on the day to day. What people experience when they come into the office, when they work from home, when they interact with their colleagues and their leaders. Um, so it it's kind of that espoused values and we get it right a lot of the time. We're still not perfect. Um, so we've still got plenty of a way to go. But I think that's always the case.
0: Mm. And you talk about leaders there again, and and we we touched on it with the mental health discussion, Um, just in terms of the importance of the line managers and them being that sort of contact point now more than ever between people and then suddenly having to, you know, be very focused and aware of the mental health of the the, um, direct reports. But you're very focused on supporting them because they can be left out in a lot of organizations sometimes could you talk into that a bit
1: yeah so very much so as part of my degree apprenticeship that i did fund, funded by aviva actually but um in management and leadership um one of the uh, end reports i did and i wanted to look at it from a wellbeing perspective is you're right, leaders play a crucial role in any organisation in what it actually feels like as, a, as an employee and how you're cared for. Your leader is the first person you would turn to usually if you want to raise a, a concern. So how they respond for, impacts your wellbeing. But actually taking on all of that work as a leader can have an impact on your own wellbeing if you're not supported. The good news is it can have a positive as well as a negative impact on your well-being because we know scientifically that if you help other people, whether that be in a line manager role or generally, then you get a positive buzz from that. So that's got a good impact. But equally, if you're not given time to do the people leadership role in your organisation, then you could be dealing with um, your team's well-being challenges and trying to still deliver your full amount of work. So as well as potentially taking on the concerns of the individuals you're supporting, you are maybe working harder and longer hours. So add those two trigger points together and your well-being as a leader might then suffer as as a result. So it's really important that an organisation provides support and training for, for leaders in terms of how to signpost so they can um, share with colleagues where to get the support they need, but also how to set boundaries as an individual, um, because they need to look after themselves to be able to look after someone else, um, and that's really important. And um, and I think there's not enough research on the impact of managing a team on a team's well-being on the leader themselves so that's um why I did a very small study as part of my uh, management report for my degree um but yeah would love to see that expanded um
0: and do you think it's harder for people in that role now than it was maybe you know three years ago the expectations have grown have they?
1: It's talked about more openly now and that can make it harder, but can also make it easier. So, so in some respects, it's raised the expectations of what's required in that role. But at least we're having conversations about it and it's not just being brushed under the carpet and, and forgotten. Um, uh, one of the challenges leaders face now in that role is managing hybrid Um, workforces quite often so if you were in the office full-time previously for example and you were face-to-face with your colleagues it's sometimes easier to be able to understand how their well-being is right now because they might be quieter than normal or you know you can physically see the impact Um, and that's not always the case when you're working virtually um, or if you're remote yeah, um, not just from a, a work from home perspective, but you know, with the increasing um, technology advancements, you know, you might not be based in the same office location as your team, for example. So that kind of remote hybrid working can can mean it harder for a leader to look at what's what's responsible. You know, what is the well being of their their team, which is why you need to equip them um, particularly well.
0: And in terms of isolation in, you know, obviously a lot of complaints about loneliness and from people working remotely. um, How have Aviva tried to overcome that?
1: So we've got a couple of tools, actually. So we have an internal um, social. We use Yammer. Um, which is a Microsoft yeah. SharePoint tool um, and as well as business groups on there for to talk about things we have social groups on there you know whether that be book clubs or gardening groups I think there's a show us your pets group you know kind of thing and that helps people connect who are like-minded yeah. Um we also have uh, an MS team site for um, colleagues who are um, menopausal for example or other themes and topics like that and we also have something called aviva connections so we heard from some colleagues that they can sometimes even come into the office let alone work from home and not really speak to anyone on a social basis all day every day Um, and we wanted to provide ways that we could help people with that so we've got an online tool to support that Um, just have a chat with someone about what was on the telly last night or you know if they want to have a chat about the weather or sport or whatever and we've also introduced in some of our offices um happy to chat benches in our communal areas so if you sit there a bit like the buddy bench in a school playground kind of thing but it's you know we we still have that inner child in us you know that you don't want to randomly approach a stranger but if someone sat on a happy to chat bench and you know you're feeling a bit isolated that day then you can go and chat about you know, whatever the latest thing is, hobbies, football, sport, whatever. So those are some of the ways we're addressing that kind of isolation perspective from Aviva's point of view.
0: And like the last 24 months obviously has, I don't know, every business, every organisation has been turned upside down. What's it been like and how is the workplace a different place now than it was 24 months ago in Aviva?
1: Um, well, we've, we've reimagined our offices to include more collaboration spaces recognizing that when people come into the office a lot of the time what they're doing is coming in to collaborate so we've created um you know additional spaces around that we've obviously made our the majority of our workspace is um, flexible working so that you can just drop in. So you might have focused work areas or you've got team desks where you might want to sit. So so we've taken uh, the opportunity to refresh some of our, um, or all of our offices to sort of kind of think about it differently and create some more of those spaces where you can come together to collaborate, because that's often why people are returning, you know, coming into the office um, as, w- as well. So we've done a, a little bit of that, but actually, I don't feel it's that much different. You know, I think there's a lot of people who are pleased to be back in the office, you know, pleased to be connecting with people. It doesn't suit everyone. And and it's about those making those individual um, connections and and things that work for you, for the business.
0: Is it up to the the individuals to decide or have you put rules in place or what Um, way to
1: we we encourage colleagues so a lot of our colleagues are looking at coming in sort of three two or three days a week but we talk about having an adult to adult conversation with your leader about what is the requirement with your what's the requirement for your role so some roles might require you to be in the office more than others um and um uh, but then also taking into account your personal circumstances um, and training. So it's it's about an adult to adult conversation to create something that's right. But with the kind of principle of, you know, we're looking if if it's if it's appropriate for the role, two to three days a week um, in our
0: offices. OK, great. And um, it's interesting just because because that's kind of takes us into that area. Where when we talk about culture, we talk about like job design and this has become kind of um, pretty kind of, uh cool right now talked about a lot even though for a lot of organizations job crafting was you know part and parcel of what they did a number of years ago but have you guys done any work in terms of redesigning jobs and roles
1: um so we have an organizational uh, design team and a business architecture team that work with our business areas and our um, people business partners so when areas of the business are looking at what 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 their work areas should look like and what their structure should look like they work closely with that but equally i feed into um our organizational design team to say you know if you were designing a job from a well-being perspective you know it would have purpose clear accountabilities empowerment and a generally sustainable workload and they're working to those core underpinning beliefs when they're working with the areas of the business to sort of like say right when we're designing these structures and these roles these things should underpin you know as well as the technical skills you might want for a role these things should underpin it um and those are things that help make work good for you You know, that make that, you know, net positive impact on your overall well-being. So I think building that into job roles and job design um, is really important Um, rather than just thinking about the roles, responsibilities and the technical Mm. elements of a role. um, To kind of like build that in, that purpose and that um, generally sustainable workload element.
0: So some organizations kind of take a very homogenous view of you know, the workforce, um, whereas you guys seem to uh, slice and dice it a little bit more and deal with sort of so cohorts and um, even life stages. You've, you've sort of split it up in that way. Talk to us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, so one of the benefits um, of being a large organisation is we have a, a broad brush of people. So we're a diverse and inclusive organisation and we want to make uh, Aviva as welcoming to all of those groups, regardless of where you're from. So we're multi-generational. There are five generations of people working at Aviva, anything from 18 to nearly 70. Um, uh, but equally, we've got um, various cultures um Uh, cultures, religions, genders. And to support that, we have um, six Aviva communities, um, and each of those communities focus on on different things, but also focus on the intersectionality between those communities. Um, And they are Balance, which is about gender parity, Pride, which is our LGBTQ plus group, Generations, which is about age, um, making sure everyone at all ages is welcome. Aviva Abilities, which is about visible and invisible disabilities. Carers, which might be elder care, child care or any other caring accountabilities you've got. And the last one is Aviva Origins, which is about culture, social mobility and religion uh, and making sure we're inclusive. And those employee resource groups really challenge the business um, to shine a spotlight on how if things are different for any of those age groups you know those groups what what kind of changes might be we want to make and how we might focus on that and we as a wellbeing team work really closely with those groups to understand what challenges they might face that are different so you know men's mental health you know how might we approach that differently to to women's mental health you know little things like describing it as mental fitness instead of mental health changes Mm -hmm. the dynamic quite often from a from somebody's viewpoint um you take the menopause which we we started to do a lot of work on after speaking to our aviva generations and our aviva balance communities but we've also been speaking to our aviva uh, pride community because it affects um those colleagues who are gender fluid or um or trans you know so not using the term women when we talk about menopause but people who are experiencing it um and equally, talking about the cultural differences, you know, some cultures and languages don't even have a word for menopause. Um, so, you know, just working with those groups to understand how we might chop and change what we offer, um, or how we offer it. Not, it's not. So, it's about equity rather than equality. Quite often,
0: yeah. There's a lot in that, isn't there? I mean, because um, one one of the stories that, because um, I know uh, one of the things you're very driven by is stories. Yes, in fever to try and get yes. messages across. Lived
1: um, experience is a brilliant way of sharing stories because our colleagues really resonate with that. Rather mm-hmm. than you know someone from the wellbeing team saying, "Oh, you ought to think about this," that kind of lived experience is really strong in mm-hmm. terms of helping you uh, promote what where you want to be as an organisation and what support you can offer either from
0: an intervention or a prevention perspective. And having so many people in all those different cohorts, and particularly let, let's talk about age. And um, in some ways, and I know age can be uh, associated with sort of, you know, people being, you know, stuck in their ways or whatever and, and quite negative. But obviously it can be a really positive thing, too. But as an organization, I mean, one of the stories you told was actually about sort of, you know, somebody saying, oh, can I have a fan on my desk? Is it in the policies and the, <laughs> the rules and the like? And this is around uh, a menopausal uh, person, wasn't it? Yes. Um, so, I mean, like, how do you transform an organisation and bring people with you to the way the organisation is today culturally. And when you find that some people, that's going to be a big change.
1: Yeah. So and that that example was quite some time ago, luckily that, you know, that's not where we're at now. But uh, but that's why we want to do some of it's about removing sometimes the stigmas and the the myths you know the urban myths around what you can and can't do and that's where again the leaders play a really crucial role in making sure you equip them and have them understand about empathy authenticity and vulnerability um to so that they can have that adult to adult honest conversation with an individual about what what they need and one of the things we've done to help to help that conversation for both the individual and the line manager is we've introduced something called a workplace adjustment passport so what that is it can be used for any number of things um, and and it's a and it's the way to record a conversation you might want with your manager about any adjustments you might need that might be a fan on your desk if you're menopausal or um, it might be if you're caring, you know, a change in your working hours to accommodate, um, you know, picking picking up prescriptions for an eld, you know an elderly relative or you know going with them to to certain things or if you've got a condition yourself going back to our aviva abilities you know um how might you best take in information you know um if you're neurodiverse um needing time to process an instruction for example so writing that into a workplace adjustment passport helps kind of your leader understand what works best for you, how they can accommodate you where possible. It's not always possible, but where possible within business, um, what we can do as a business. But the good thing about it is it also means if you move to a new manager, you're not faced with having those conversations from scratch again. You take that passport with you role to role, and that really helps then.
0: okay. so this is basically, this is me, (laughs) essentially. This is how I work best. These are some of the limitations maybe I have. And rather than having to get to know each other and understand that over a period of time and maybe mistakes happen. This is very much I handed to you at the start. And does the manager hand me theirs uh, so that I can kind of have a shortcut to understand them?
1: Um, you, well, the manager might have that. You know, not everyone chooses to have a workplace adjustment okay. passport. It's just um, it's an individual preference. So but yeah, if an individual wanted to do that, they could. Yep. Yeah.
0: Okay, great. And as you mentioned the menopause, but for, for many people in the workplace, uh, I, women's health has become a really big issue. And thankfully, some progress has been made on that. What other things around that whole area would you have um, promoted?
1: Um, so I think what's really important is making sure people know what support is available to them. So, you know, we've got equal parental leave um, for our colleagues. So regardless of gender or whether your baby or new child comes through adoption, surrogacy or um, childbirth, you've got the opportunity for that kind of um equal parental leave, which levels out the playing field um, in, in an organisation. So that's six months full pay and then six months unpaid. And that's whether, you know, whoever you are in the relationship. And if you, you both work for Viva, you both get that kind of thing. So that's really important. I think flexible working policies um, is really important as well um, to support people. And then you've got things like fertility Time off for of fertility treatment. We've got um, an app that supports colleagues through menopause um, and and that kind of stuff. But equally, we've got health checks um, available through Aviva Digicare Plus workplace, which are for anyone. Because while we talk about supporting a particular group, we recognise that everyone's got different needs. Um, so women's health is one issue, but but equally, for example, as I mentioned earlier, from a mental fitness and mental health perspective you know male suicide is quite high so how can we make sure those colleagues feel comfortable to talk about that um either to someone outside of the organization but how do we signpost them to the right um to the right tools and and support for them individually there is so much an organization can offer um and it's about finding the right way to support people as best we can um And a lot of that comes from empathy and understanding in the first point, as well as being able to signpost them to help if you can't Mm. offer it.
0: And One of the things I see um, you you talk about is uh, advocates in the organisation. I saw at one stage somebody asked you who advocates for you and couldn't really answer it. And that was, well, nobody. (laughs) So this is a big part of the organisation now. So talk to me about that.
1: Yes yeah, so I think advocacy is a really important part of um for, especially from a career development perspective so at the time that conversation was in in respect of career development and I think quite often um if if you can advocate for people in terms of career development progression succession some might call it mentoring some would call it a sponsor um you know there are various different ways you can look at that kind of element and I think it's really important that we have that kind of uh, working with people who you f- who you find support and understand you to put you on the stage if you like and and help them grow um someone once said to me um a flower doesn't compare themselves to the flower next to them they are both beautiful in their own right and i think that's true about individuals we need to think less about competing and more about shining each other and letting you know and helping each other shine so let's all and and that's where the advocate role comes in if if you like so it's about helping someone grow in their career by um, advocating for them in a conversation making sure they get the credit they deserve for whatever they've done recently you know if you've come across that and just championing their work and and their um deliverables hmm. but it can it can apply from a well-being perspective as well so and that's that's either been an advocate or an ally so oh. if you're seeing um, behaviors from a diverse inclusion perspective from a well-being perspective that aren't inclusive or don't support well-being are you are, are you allied to that community and speaking out or are you just letting it ride and go silent um you know and then you're not play you're not doing that role justice by not speaking up if it's safe to do so so there's that element of you know quite often i see um food for example offered as recognition and reward um not so much now in aviva but certainly outside of it you know uh, my partner will often come home and say oh did a good job today got a bottle of wine and i said you don't drink wine and he goes yeah but nobody ever offers anything else you know kind of thing so that recognition for him is devalued because the what goods why but also if you were a recovering alcoholic that mm. that wouldn't support your well-being if you had an eating disorder and it was always chocolates or oh let's go for a team meal out you know then you are you are creating that inclusion that impact negative impact on someone's well-being by not being thoughtful about the people within your organization and what you're doing um, and how you ally those kind of what about these people who you know, you wouldn't consider it acceptable now to to go to somewhere where a you know a wheelchair user couldn't access if you had one in your team. Yeah. But you don't think twice about using a meal out as a way. But that excludes someone who's got an eating disorder, perhaps, who who doesn't feel comfortable eating in front of someone. So we need to think more carefully about how we are inclusive to support wellbeing, so and you- that includes advocate and allyship, and allyship.
0: Okay, so it's a a much more thoughtful workplace when you're thinking about where people are coming from and what maybe recognition will look like uh, to them and how to land. Okay, Um, because it's interesting uh, that allyship and kind of putting yourself in other people's positions and speaking out at a moment rather than letting something go fits in really nicely with uh, something I was reading today about your annual general meeting and. that your chairman i think called out something on behalf of your um ceo uh, amanda blank or Blanc is it uh, blank.
1: yeah Amanda blank. so we did have a couple of shareholders make some comments um which were deemed inappropriate um from aviva's perspective around um you know whether a female was in the right role um, and our chair did call them out at the end saying all those comments were not welcome um and not flabbergasted you know was was flabbergasted at, at the fact that they've been raised and it's really important to showcase that kind of leadership of of calling those inappropriate behaviors you know we have values at aviva and we 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 expect people to act and and live within those values within the organization and um act on act on it if that's not visible so to see it at the highest level of the organization you know and call it out at the annual general meeting is is important from a role modeling perspective because as well as we talked earlier about lived experience being really important um but so is role modeling Mm. from a from a leadership perspective um so role modeling the right behaviors from a diverse inclusion but also from a well-being benefit is really important um you know it's great to I, and I try and do it. it it's something I call one of the things I do is called leave loudly so um, if I'm leaving at three o'clock to go and do something to support my well-being I will leave loudly I won't sneak away with trying to like oh see if I sneak out nobody's noticed I'm going at three because I'm a little bit embarrassed I will leave loudly I will say I'm off now because I'm going to whatever it might be gym swim yeah, yeah, know, yeah. bake a cake see my kids at school whatever it might be that leaving loudly and role modelling that as a leader within Viva, you know, is something we can encourage, whether it be saying, I always take an hour for lunch because I walk my dog or you can't contact me at this time because I'm spending time with my family, whatever that might be, or I spend 20 minutes every day colouring to support my mental health, you know, every role modelling story by a senior leader or a leader within the organisation lands really well. uh, And the more we do it, you know, it has the same impact as that kind of lived experience, um, because it, rightly or wrongly, sometimes people feel that they can't do that kind of thing even though we tell them they can do it they don't actually do it if they're not seeing that being done by people more senior in the organisation because you think oh well you say that but you don't mean it if I want to progress I've got to be like you so that role modelling is really important.
0: And and that very question uh, the sense that you know the people who get on in organisations are the people who work late and Who kind of have visibility around the office and who how do you how do you break that down and and show people it's not the case
1: so i think role modeling is is one of the keys from our senior leaders so that you can be senior and you know, so we, uh, until recently, we had two job share uh, at a uh, senior level, two male job shares at a uh, very senior level in the organisation, proving that, you know, everyone said, oh, you can't be a director and job share. Well, actually, you can. We've proved it. It works kind of thing. Um, uh, two to gents um, who've only recently sure. left and moved on to other things. But, but that kind of um, uh, disabasing that and celebrating the success of people who aren't doing long hours so calling out great projects from part-timers calling out great projects from you know people who work from home and one of the things we we have encouraged our leaders to do is for a while from a diverse and inclusion perspective we've been saying you know think you need to find people who don't necessarily think like you speak like you look like you the, the the new one we've added is work like you. So mm. just because you like being in the office, it doesn't necessarily mean you should surround yourself by people who are solely working in the office or who work nine to five or who are neurotypical and you're, neuro, you know, on neurodivertive. So if you're those things, whether it be work, sound, think, look. So adding work like you to that mix is what enables us to make sure our colleagues um don't always hire and promote and give opportunities to clones of themselves Mm -hmm. whether that be you know for any kind of characteristic including their working style and pattern
0: that's really interesting I mean uh, and how have you trained them to number one recognize that they might be doing it but number two to sort of say you know well maybe you should think differently about this so
1: we have a number of uh, training. So our learning and development platform within Aviva is called Aviva University. So we've got some mandatory training for people leaders and also open training to all colleagues. So over 90% of our colleagues have done anti-racism training, for example, um, on there. And also any any line manager who's hiring, um, whether that be internally or externally, has to go on a training course, a license to hire, course uh, and that includes um training and work on inclusive hiring um as part of that um including making sure that you make the recruitment process as inclusive as possible so we talk about for example um when prepare helping people prepare for an interview thinking about if someone you're interviewing is neurodiverse they might need longer to prepare or they might need questions delivering in a different format if you've got a menopausal person who's mid mid um interview and suddenly has a hot flush how are you gonna mm-hmm. how are you gonna deal with that as an interviewer um all those kind of things are built into that training that help people with that um and we have regular kind of our Ara- communities that i mentioned earlier they do a good job of lots of content seminars um and and stuff on our um yammer and on our internet to help people
0: okay i in just two probably questions before we we wrap um one would be around data and um you know i don't know if you have a dashboard even around uh, sort of diversity and inclusion and and your metrics around that do you share that publicly with people is there transparency around that
1: um so we do um we ask we ask our colleagues to voluntarily fill in data on our um on our HR system um, and we've encouraged that and that's grown massively recently in terms of um, how many people have completed that even if by completing it they've chosen not to say but that is one of the options within it and we do have targets around um, some elements of our diversity inclusion work around gender, around equality and those are kind of baked into overall programmes, but we do look at the data um, and we can cut listening survey information by different kind of data that we have on our HR management, but only a very limited number of people can access that um, so that can access the core data that sits behind it so we protect the people's data who've um, chosen to volunteer it Um, but yeah as a people function we do look at um, whether that's impacting anything like trends whether that be leaving hiring promoting you know whether people are flexible part-time work full-time work what gender they are and those kind of things so we do use that um, information to support our diversity inclusion work
0: great so last question Um, People automatically will probably say, you know, it's easy for Aviva or these large companies because they've got big budgets and all this. And, you know, whereas if you were tomorrow advising an organization of you know, 20 people, 200 people, 1000 people, um, what do you think are the key things that they should be focusing on in terms of trying to make their workforce healthier and their workplace healthier?
1: So, um, yeah I think there are benefits and disadvantages to both actually because while we are a very large organisation which might bring some benefits actually communicating with 24,000 people is not easy um, and and the challenges some of that brings of trying to get some consistency or where you, do you allow individuality in different parts of the business so if you're a small organisation of 50 people you could almost probably stand in the middle of the office and talk to people all at the same time kind of thing which you can't do in a larger organisation so it comes with some benefits. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of the key things, the first things I would look at is, is that kind of do the roles you offer, and I'm going to go to these same four things again, do yeah. they have purpose, clear accountabilities, are the roles empowered and are the workloads generally sustainable? that costs nothing as an organisation to look at. And that really does honestly underpin how someone feels about working for an organisation. The second thing I would do is build trust and be an empathetic leader um, who is vulnerable and authentic. Um, again, that costs nothing, but your role as a leader is important. And if you invest in their wellbeing and an understanding them and what's going on in their broader life, they will invest more in your organization and so it makes that's where the good business sense comes from and they'll invest in you if you invest in them and that includes their well-being but you'll be surprised actually potentially how much you already might offer that you don't think of as well-being mm-hmm. so you know if you're a small organisation in a in a local town you might have a you might have an agreement with a cafe around the corner for a discount so that's going to help with financial well-being you might have a local leisure centre in in the town that says oh well as an organisation we'll give your staff 10% off And, you know, those kind of little wins, which cost you nothing as an organisation, but add value to the employee proposition and why they might want to work with you and for you. Um, So those are kind of some of the things. But the four key things are the ones I mentioned at the start.
0: Love that. And if you can bring it together into some sort of a, a plan, which you can share with everybody to sort of say, this is the journey we're on and maybe have some data to to see how people are getting on.
1: Yeah. And ask them yeah that's that's the other thing you know adult to adult conversation you know make obviously you can't any organization regardless of size can't do everything um that that would that you would want so you know speak to your employees and say how how can we make you know the best thing from a well-being perspective you know it might be something as small as getting a kettle and some coffee and tea in the office you know that or, or playing a radio instead yeah. of having deathly yeah. silence you could be really surprised how easy you know it could be um to do it and they will be the ones to have a conversation and if you've built that trust between them they're not going to ask for the ridiculous um they're going to ask for the realistic
0: yeah that's fantastic debbie listen i've thoroughly enjoyed uh the conversation with you today oh sorry one before i go because i should have said this um you guys run a, a program about domestic abuse um, and it's something I, I just have written down here, so I'd be really annoyed at myself if I uh, didn't raise it before I go. So, could you just very quickly talk into that?
1: Yes, yeah, so certainly. Um, so one of the things we've done around um, training colleagues and understanding things for our customers is domestic abuse um, affects more people, I think, than anyone would like to acknowledge, and, and more than we would like. Um, and we need to protect our customers, especially from potentially financial domestic abuse and that kind of um, coercion. Um, so we provide training on Aviva University um, around domestic abuse and how to recognise it um, and how to get support and. We provide and um, options for colleagues who may be. Um on the receiving end of domestic abuse to speak to an appropriate um, person. Now, we know our colleagues, but we're not necessarily subject matter on expertise on this. So we worked with a domestic abuse charity okay. called Safe Lives, and we they helped us create the content for this. They've done some training with our vulnerable customer champions um, and with key uh, personnel in our people function um, to understand if someone came to us um, raising those concerns, how we are best equipped to support them.
0: Some really interesting insights from Debbie Bullock and Aviva. I know a lot of people will be inspired to implement a lot of those across their own organizations. I know I'm going to leave loudly from now on and loudly and proudly. Next up with our Work Healthy podcast series, we talk burnout with Professor Wilmar Schafeli from Utrecht University. Do please join us for that.